Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season 10, episode 5, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you, all while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today, we'll be discussing the British zombie post-apocalyptic horror film, 28 Days Later. It was written by Alex Garland and directed by Danny Boyle. It stars Killian Murphy, Naomi Harris, Christopher Eccleston, Megan Burns, and Brendan Gleeson. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Specific trigger warnings for this episode can be found in the show notes. Are you still here? Great! Then let's get this morning started. Abby, would you be so kind as to read the plot summary? Absolutely. Main character Jim wakes up from a coma alone in a London hospital. Confused and terrified about the new state of the world, he soon meets other survivors who tell him that the world has been infected with the rage virus, and there aren't many humans left. Joining forces with Selena, Frank, and his daughter Hannah, Jim embarks on a journey to find other human life and a possible cure for infection. But... Can they survive the ragers along with the other humans who threaten their existence in this new barren world filled with menacing problems at every turn? Or will they too be infected by the rage virus? Or the rave virus? Popped a mile and now I'm sweating. Whoo! I, I literally could not help but think that every time someone, when I was reading about this, was someone said the rage virus, and I, in my head I thought, the rave virus. That would have been really funny. And Especially just, because autocorrect will often like change rage to rave for me. I don't know why. I don't know why. But right, you're not a raver that I know of. <laughs> I'm not moonlighting as like... <laughs> I, I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, okay, well, thank you for that lovely plot summary. Let's get into the production of the film. So, according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, after director Danny Boyle and producer Andrew McDonald filmed an adaptation of Alex Garland's novel The Beach, which blew my mind. I had no idea Alex Garland wrote The Beach. No, I didn't either. What a pleasant <laughs> surprise. Right. Uh, Garland approached McDonald about this concept for 28 Days Later in an interview with Creative Screenwriting. Garland explained, quote, I said to him that I had an idea for a movie about running zombies. I wrote it and sent it to him, and the two of us went backwards and forwards with it for a few drafts. 
At the point I was working on 28 Days Later, I had a lot of zombie movies, as well as video games like Resident Evil turning around in my head, unquote. Ooh. Yeah. The running zombie concept changed everything. Yes. And I think I read that this technically isn't the first fast zombie movie, but it's Mm. definitely the one that, like, is cemented in everyone's brain. Because it's terrifying. They figured out how to do it so well. Yes, for sure. Okay. So earlier uh, influences on Garland included uh, the George Romero films Night of the Living Dead from 1968 and Dawn of the Dead from 1978, which he loved as a child, but said that he had largely forgotten about the zombie genre until he played the video game Resident Evil from 1996, which reminded him how much he loved zombies after, quote, unquote, having not really encountered zombies for quite a while. Yes, I love it. So um, I want to add that Alex Garland not only wrote The Beach, which, again, blows my mind, um, he went on to make amazing films like Ex Machina and Annihilation, which we (gasps) talked about in 2019, I think for season eight or something. Yeah. Oh, my God. That makes so much sense. Yes. And he has a new film coming out called Men from A24, and it looks Mm -hmm incredibly eerie and i can't wait oh yes 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 okay so 28 days later features scenes set in normally bustling parts of london such as westminster bridge piccadilly circus horse guards parade and oxford street to depict these locations as desolate the film crew closed off sections of the street for minutes at a time again minutes at a time wow usually in early morning before sunrise on sundays and would have typically around 45 minutes after dawn to shoot the locations devoid of traffic and members of the public to minimize disruption and according to wikipedia portions of the film were shot on a canon xl1 digital video camera Wow. I was telling Luke this and Luke was like, he goes, that was like my first, he goes, quote unquote, like my first real camera. Yep. So this was a camera that, that like normal civilian people had. (laughs) So that's why this film looks so like weird. Like it looks old. I was, when I was watching it, I was like, this looks like a this looks like a home movie. I was so confused, but I didn't know at the time when I was watching it that that's what they were using. So I was yes. like, I was like, why does this look like a home movie? So yes. yeah, so uh, these cameras uh, are much smaller and more maneuverable than a traditional film camera, which would have been impractical on such brief shoots. And the scenes of the M1 motorway devoid of traffic were also filmed within very limited time periods. Um, A mobile police roadblock slowed traffic sufficiently to leave a long section of the carriageway empty while the scene was filmed. The section depicted in the film was filmed at Milton, I think it's uh, Kinez? Kinez? Not sure. I'm probably saying that wrong. I'm very sorry. Uh, It's near Manchester. And for the London scene where Jim walks by the overturned double-decker bus, the film crew placed the bus on its side and removed it when the shot was finished. 
in 20 minutes. What? Yes. <laughs> they oh in within 20 minutes they put a bus on its side, shot the scene and then flipped the bus back up. <laughs> and just left and then went on their way. This film crew is on maybe a lot of caffeine. <laughs> You kind of have to be if you're filming. Like, it's almost like guerrilla style how they film this. Yes. Really bizarre. Okay. So according to Jamie Russell for their book, Book of the Dead, The Complete History of Zombie Cinema, uh, they say, let me, I have the book right here. Give me one second. (laughs) Shot cheaply and quickly on digital video. 28 Days Later had an indie movie's guerrilla feel and style. Curiously, though, the involvement of a major studio prompted Boyle to be somewhat circumspect about the film's genre lineage. In interviews, he explicitly distanced himself from horror cinema in general and the Z-word in particular. Quote, I suppose my trepidation about calling it a horror movie while we were making it was partly to do with how Fox was planning to market it. Are they going to turn this into a mainstream cult film for zombie fans? The director mused to this the director mused this to uh, Fangoria magazine. His fears seemed fair enough, but they did lead to some rather ridiculous comments as he tied himself up in a somatic in somatic knots in this attempt to disown the film's heritage. Quote, I don't see 28 Days Later as part of some zombie lineage. Zombie films are an entertaining part of the horror genre, but they are rooted in nuclear paranoia. Zombie addicts have another theory. They say it has to do with the shooting of Kennedy because you can only kill zombies by shooting them in the head. I don't really buy into that, but I can see the connection with nuclear power and what it will do to us. That whole living dead thing. Those fears aren't so relevant anymore, but the idea of a psychological virus is fascinating, unquote. I have never in my whole life as a horror fan heard somebody say, that you can relate zombie movies to politics because of the shooting of Kennedy. (laughs) Ever. And maybe it's because I'm not really into the zombie genre, but I've never heard someone say that. So when I read that, I was like, people say that? (laughs) I know. I've also never, ever, ever heard of... the The only thing that I can think about is like, somehow they relate it back to like mk ultra and right like that kind of conspiracy theory but um yeah that's that's a are you a yoga teacher because that's a stretch (laughs) (laughs) yeah so interesting but i i that is funny because this film they never say the z word they never say zombie and i think it's really interesting that Boyle himself never called it a zombie movie. Yep. Yep. Mm. Me too. Mm. Okay. Well, according to Russell, quote, an apocalyptic fantasy in the characteristically British vein of H.G. Wells, John Windham, or J.G. Ballard, 28 Days Later is a masterful little horror film. 
Unlike Resident Evil, it's not ashamed of its zombies, whatever Boyle's personal hang-ups about the Z-word itself might suggest. Frantic and furious, the film's infected are terrifying, highly contagious creatures with a habit of puking up their tainted blood over the living as the virus causes their internal organs to go into meltdown, unquote. Oof. Yeah. Dang. And yeah, this was my first time watching it. And I'm so glad that you picked this movie, Abby, because now I've watched it. I know. I cannot even believe that you hadn't seen it until before now. But I'm so glad that you watched it because it's such like I am not a huge fan of the zombie genre as a whole. Um, I don't know. I just feel like it's kind of played out. And um, I don't know. Call me a contrarian, but it's just like not really my thing. But this was one of the first, like, quote-unquote zombie movies that I saw. And it stuck with me so hard. Um, And we'll get into it in the discussion and stuff like that. But it's so, um, like, the imagery is so frightening. And I don't usually find myself scared watching zombie movies. But this scared the living fuck out of me when I was younger. Like the way the way that they move the way that they sound um the places that you find them that one guy in the window when they're at that mansion that was like classic that reminded me of that twilight zone episode of (gasps) yeah terror at 30,000 feet or whatever it's called I can't remember but yeah, the when he opens the window and the monster's just at the window. That seemed very like old school in a good way. I that was scary. Yes. Yep. And the entire like metaphor behind it too, like they want to get in is so oh it's yeah. it's so scary. It's it so is, scary. Yeah, that is scary. This yeah. I mean, like I really love Train to Busan and I really love I really like this movie a lot. Yes. Um, but yeah, I'm not really a zombie person either, like I said earlier. So when we do find zombie movies that we love, we're probably going to talk about it on here. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's get into our discussion. Uh, the first topic we're going to talk about is what does this rage virus represent? Well, I think we need to make this clear straight away. Boyle does sort of have a point. These monsters aren't technically zombies because they're not dead right jamie russell for their amazing book uh has more to say on this let me get my book out his raging subhumans aren't zombies per se but unfortunate victims of a plague that starts after an overzealous group of animal rights activists accidentally (laughs) release a man-made virus from a research laboratory in the pre-credit sequence Tapping into millennial fears about the biological warfare, chemical attacks, and viral outbreaks, 28 Days Later proved the perfect index of the Western world's post-9-11 apocalyptic anxieties. Yep. Okay, so everyone knows about the attacks on the Twin Towers in New York City on September 11, 2001. I probably didn't even have to tell you that much. Um... We've talked about <laughs> yeah. it on the show a few times before uh, as well, so I, I won't get into it too much. But the fact that the majority of this film was being made 
before the attacks is actually pretty fascinating to me because I think it really goes, it really does like embody our fears, like Russell said, that we had at the time. And according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, much of the filming took place prior to September 11th. And in the audio commentary for the DVD, Danny Boyle notes the parallel between the missing persons flyers seen at the beginning of the film and similar flyers posted in New York City in the wake of the attacks. Mm. Boyle adds that his crew probably would not have been granted permission to close off Whitehall for filming after the terrorist attacks in New York and in Washington. Unquote. So for the most part, this film was made in order, like in sequence as well. Like the scenes they shot were in order of how the story flows, which is actually pretty rare. And according to IMDb, the film was shot almost entirely in sequence. Only pickups and a few reshoots were shot out of sequence. And the scenes where Jim and Selena celebrate with Frank and Hannah, that was actually shot on on 9-11. Ooh. Yeah. (laughs) really weird like bizarre coincidence that they had this happy moment in the film that they were shooting and it just it just lined up with this traumatic thing that happened yeah um danny boyle said it felt extremely strange to shoot a celebratory scene on that day yeah so uh 9-11 did not just affect the united states according to lindsay clutterbuck was that is the best last name I've ever heard in my ever fucking life. I love it. Oh my god. The attacks of 9-11 cast a long enduring shadow not only over the US but also over the UK, the member states of the EU and beyond. Within the UK, the changes it brought about to the national counterterrorism response were unprecedented. In the EU In the EU, it became the catalyst for member states to cooperate on counterterrorism in far more coordinated and integrated ways. By these measures alone, 9-11 has shaped the world we live in today, unquote. And out of almost 3,000 victims, 67 of them uh, were British citizens. Oh, my God. Which is a lot, you know. Yeah. So they're... You know, not only Americans weren't the only ones who died. There were British citizens who died on 9-11 as well. Right. I mean, I think it's also very interesting that the videos that the chimpanzees are forced to watch look like they come from places like Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and, you know, areas like these where we ended up fighting the war on terror after 9-11. And, um... I mean, we've always been involved in some kind of conflict in those places because of gold and oil and, you know, good old American greed. But it's as if those areas are culturally synonymous with what we think of when we hear the words global terror or areas of conflict. And it has really embedded into our culture, like I said, and these places are they end up becoming like the causes of our rage and that's where we point our anger and it's extremely harmful to people from those areas of the world a very it's a very toxic cycle basically and the fact that this virus is born from forcing these chimps to watch highlight reels of the worst behaviors coming out of those pockets of the world 
I mean, it's a direct reflection about who pulls the strings when it comes to what we consume on a global news basis. And the scientists could easily represent how the governments view their subjects. And that's exactly what they are. They're they're test subjects meant to be subservient and take everything that they're dished. But when people come to intervene, it's like there's no winning either. And um, a really interesting thing that just popped into my head too. Um, I just watched the film uh, The Report on Amazon with Adam Driver. And he played... Um, this man, I for, um, I think his name is Daniel Jones, and he led an investigation into um, the – he led an investigation in the methods that we used for torture after 9-11. Oh, right. Yeah. And it legit is the same imagery that you see of these, like, chimpanzees watching like we waterboarded people and we tortured them without any basis of knowing if they were involved in terrorism Mm. or if they were in league with al-qaeda we were doing this and it was like so-called developed by these psychologists from the air force and they had no basis for doing any of it and the film takes a look at why the CIA did this and why they tried to cover it up. And it has to do with the amount of anger that Americans had towards these people. And all of this pent-up rage and anxiety. And they took it out on these people through these torture methods. I, and yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, I I remember, um, so, like, everyone knows, I was homeschooled. So we were part of, like, a lot of homeschooled groups where there were a lot of very Christian people. Oh, yeah. And um, <laughs> my family was not really that that group. I mean, we kind of had to, We these were the people we knew because they were all homeschooled people as well. But we weren't really, like, in a agreement with their beliefs um and i remember my aunt who also homeschooled her kids and was also sort of like not really in that group of of people um she was talking to another homeschool mom and i was just happened to be like overhearing what they were saying and this other homeschool mom said i think we should just blow that whole country up uh I think we should just kill everyone. Just kill them all. Like, she was just so... She was mad. And she was scared because she didn't didn't understand the the people that lived over there. Right. And my aunt goes, what about all the women and children? And this other mom went... (gasps) Like, she couldn't believe she had said that. And she, like, 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 almost on her rage, like, simmered. Yep. And, and then, and then just like went, it just went away and she was like, oh my God, you're right. <laughs> like, yeah. it's amazing what, when you are angry and you're scared, what you will just say that yes. is like so like problematic and scary. And it's just like, what the fuck? Yeah. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's amazing what rage and, and fear does to people. It, oh, it oh, makes them, yeah. it, it makes them yeah, lose their mind. I hate to say that, but it's like they will say things that don't make sense. No, it's true. It's absolute madness. And we do it like under the guise of 
freedoms and keeping people safe. But that's not it. It's like a it. I could almost compare that time period to the Salem witch trials in that like we were torturing these people to get answers, but the answers weren't there because they weren't even involved. But we were just so angry and the American people wanted their revenge that we were taking people from their families and hurting them. Yes. And there were no repercussions until this report came out. So it's just, it's like a big whole thing. (laughs) Anybody who is interested in that kind of stuff should look into it because the psychology behind it is, it's pseudoscience. It's not even real, but it's um, absolutely astounding what humans are capable of doing and what governments will let people get away with. And that, I think, is one of the huge reasons why Danny Boyle and Alex Garland made this film. Because that has been going on. Oh, we're going to talk about that, yes, at the end, for sure. Yes. Um, But that's how it relates to 9-11, even though it was made. It was starting to get made before that, which is amazing to me. Um, Right. So let's talk about another thing that the rage virus would represent, which is mad cow disease, which happened in the UK. Oh, so um, scary. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so like I said, this is my first time watching the movie. And before I started watching it, like my ignorant, selfish American brain was like, this movie is definitely about 9-11 and nothing else. <laughs> oh, Until no. I realized it absolutely is not because it was made before it happened. So there you go. But um, obviously... The pandemic is a huge thing that's happened. The, the pandemic is happening in this movie and it's mm-hmm. huge. And I wondered like what epidemics happened in England during that time or like around that time that made a huge impact on British citizens. And I was like, oh, my God, of course, mad cow disease was one. Yep. According to Michael W. Smith, MD, quote, mad cow disease or BSE is a transmissible slowly progressive degenerative and fatal disease affecting the central nervous system of adult cattle. Researchers believe that the infectious agent that causes mad cow disease is an abnormal version of a protein normally found on cell surfaces called a prion. For reasons still unknown, this protein becomes altered and destroys nervous system tissue, the brain and spinal cord. A human version of mad cow disease is called variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, uh, VCJD, uh, and it's believed to have been caused by eating beef products contaminated with central nervous system tissue, such as brain and spinal cord, from cattle infected with mad cow disease. Mad cow disease has been of great concern since 1986 when it was first reported among cattle in the UK. And at its peak in January of 1993, almost a thousand new cases per week were identified. Concern about this disease grew significantly in 1996 when an association between mad cow disease and VCJD in humans was discovered. uh, Unquote. And side note, I actually know someone who wanted to donate her eggs for, like, childless couples. Mm -hmm. And she couldn't because she was living in England as a kid when (gasps) mad cow disease was at its peak. Oh. Yeah. So she was denied the ability to do that. (laughs) 
Isn't that wild? Yes. Oh, my God. So mad cow disease was super fucking scary. And according to a 2018 BBC News report, it progressively attacks the brain but can remain dormant for decades. Yep. Since 1995, when it was identified, 170 deaths have been attributed to VCJD. And it's thought that one in 2,000 people in the UK, like, still carry this disease. Uh, so this film was being made only about five or six years after the peak of Mad Cow. So the rage virus, like, like that could have been based on the, the Mad Cow disease, like, scare. Yeah. I mean, it's a big, uh, it's a big sociological part of, um, culture. Like, food is part of the ecosystem, obviously. So when you're getting this contaminated food and you don't really know if you're going to be affected by it, it's extremely scary. I could see why everybody would be on edge. <laughs> like, holy shit. Yes, exactly. For sure. Um, So this next topic is something that I actually wasn't aware of that happened in England. Uh, but according to TJ Knight Jones, quote, the outbreak of foot and mouth disease in the U- in the United Kingdom in 2001 caused a crisis in British agriculture and tourism. The epizootic saw 2,000 cases of the disease in farms across most of British most of the British countryside. Over six million cows and sheep were killed in an eventually successful attempt to halt the disease unquote wow yeah and according to robin mickey the first case of foot and mouth was reported in essex on february 19th 2001 so this was the same year that this film was made uh with a second being diagnosed in northumberland only four days later it was immediately clear the disease had already spread across the country with most evidence indicating that infected animal products had been imported from the far east and had been used as animal feed on pig farms passing the virus as a number of cases mounted dramatically over the following weeks more and more animals had to be slaughtered and their carcasses burned britain was transfixed transfixed by grim television and newspaper images of pyres of animal corpses being incinerated across the countryside i've actually seen these pictures and they are pretty pretty uh scary looking oh yeah yeah vast tracts of land were turned into crematoria and a foul smelling haze settled over the landscape unquote oh god right so what exactly does foot and mouth disease do Well, according to Wikipedia, the virus causes a high fever lasting two to six days, followed by blisters inside the mouth and on the feet that may rupture and cause lameness. Humans are are only extremely rarely infected by this disease, uh, foot and mouth disease. Um, Humans, particularly young children, are more affected by hand, foot and mouth disease, which is often confused for this. It's not the same thing. So even though foot and mouth doesn't really affect humans, the fact that it affected England's literal food source (sighs) is huge and almost completely destroyed their economy. Oh, my God. Yes. So the fact that they stopped this, for me, I think saved England's economy. They would have been drowning 
if all of their cattle had and sheep and pigs had died. Oh my god. Yes. Uh, so because this happened the same year the film was made, this scare would have been very, very, very present while making the film. Mm-hmm. So another thing that the rage virus could be based on is HIV AIDS. And I feel like this might be obvious to a lot of people because um, of the chimps. According to advert.com, quote, HIV crossed from chimps to humans in the 1920s in what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. This was probably as a result of chimps carrying the simian immunodeficiency virus, SIV, uh, a virus closely related to HIV, being hunted and eaten by people living in the area. So how does HIV affect humans? Well... According to health.newyork.gov, HIV finds the white blood cells called CD4 cells, and HIV gets inside these cells and makes copies of itself. Then HIV kills the cell, and the new HIV copies find another CD4 cell and, and get inside the and get inside then, and then they start the cycle again. So uh, HIV basically just kills your immune system with cells that help the body fight infections and diseases, unquote. It's fucking brutal. Yeah. Um, According to the essay AIDS, the Epidemic That Changed Britain by Janet Weston, quote, in the early 1980s, reports of a strange new disease began emerging from the United States, and it was picked up in the British gay press, gay news, and they ran a story in November of 1981 under the headline, quote, gay cancer or mass media scare, unquote. But yeah, but relatively, um, few people like noticed in Britain. Um, Even among those who did, it was like, there was like confusion and doubt and they weren't like, these were like kind of tales of like the quote unquote gay cancer. And it was just like fear mongering and backlash against the gains of the fight for gay liberation in the 1970s. Like, how could a disease target gay men anyway? Unquote. Uh, Yeah. And by July 1983, there had been 14 reported cases of AIDS in Britain, all among men. Most were gay, including one man who also injected drugs, but the group included another who had been receiving treatment for hemophilia in the form of blood products. Just two months later, the number had risen to 24, and it included women and another man with hemophilia. As numbers of diagnoses in the United Kingdom started to rise sharply, the deaths began, unquote. And on June 3rd, 2001... The same year, 20 days later, was being filmed. It was estimated that 36.2 million people worldwide were presently living with HIV and that 20 million people had, by 2001, died from the virus. Yes, and this is all uh, according to the United Nations, as reported by The Guardian. So, uh, yeah, that could have been a real (laughs) a thing that it was based on but apparently the real inspiration for like the look of the virus like what it does to your body i guess is uh ebola yeah that makes sense yeah so according to michael kennedy for screen rant quote the main inspiration for 28 days 28 days later's rage virus is uh the ebola virus and it is a fairly rare condition but that's somewhat infamous due to its 
horrifying side effects. <laughs> Once contracted, Ebola hits the sufferer with fever, pain, diarrhea, and eventually uncontrollable levels of bleeding, both internally and externally. It can cause one's organs to shut down as well, leading obviously to a very uncomfortable demise. Like the rage virus, Ebola is passed through contact with infected blood and can be passed along among all primates, such as between chimps and people, unquote. Now, there has never been an Ebola epidemic or even a major outbreak in the UK, but there was an outbreak in the US in, 20, in 1995. So that might have been on the UK's radar that that happened. Um, but this happened much later. Uh, but there was a that prominent ep- epidemic of Ebola that happened in West Africa from 2014 to 2016. Man, that was so scary. It was. <laughs> it was so scary. They had they maintained it, but it was really scary for the people there. Um, yeah. Yeah, but then there's also good old-fashioned toxic rage and stressful social situations. (laughs) Like we were talking about earlier when we were discussing uh, Americans' reactions to 9-11. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jamie Russell, for The Complete History of Zombie Cinema, says, Boldly updating the zombie genre for a new millennium, Boyle and novelist-turned-screenwriter Alex Garland present us with an apocalypse that they claim is a reflection of our increasingly stressful social interactions. Quote, it started with road rage and cars, but now every inner city hospital has to have security guards, explained Boyle. Air rage, parking rage, trolley rage in the supermarkets. We thought, what if we could employ that as the element that constitutes the zombies? Unquote. Russell goes on to say, employing the infected as a metaphor for the breakdown of the social structures governing our behavior towards one another, the film suggests that Anger, rage, itself, has become the defining emotional response in late capitalist societies. Some people have a theory that it's democracy that does it, that people are waking up to the fact that democracy tells you all the time, you have to vote, you are important, but the truth is, you're not. Other people say it's actually a direct result of Thatcher. She said, there's no such thing as a society, let's empower the individual, but the truth is, we are completely irrelevant. These moments of rage happen when people are not treated properly. I remember seeing the CCTV clip of a woman with parking rage. She was so furious that someone else was going for the same parking space that she repeatedly hammered her car into the other vehicle. The truth is this sort of thing is happening more and more. It's not some abstract monster. The monster is in all of us. We are all capable of flying into a violent rage." Uh, Russell goes on to say, murky and digital cinematography mimics the grainy virate of the ambiquitous inner city CCTV camera and 28 days later questions where we are heading Uh, with brutal honesty, turning the contemporary urban landscape into a vision of hell that owes as much to Hieronymus Bosch as Romero. And the film presents us with a stark vision of a social breakdown. The infected are consumed from within by the destruction, destructiveness of their own rage. Unquote. Whew. Ah. Right? It's almost like scarier that there is really no virus, but just people are just mad. 
Well, funny you should say that. Um, this will transition really well into our next topic, but I just want to say a few things here. Um, this film is beautiful because we see so many different perspectives. Um, and, you know, we have Jim as our main character, but he shares the spotlight pretty equally with the rest of the characters, I think. Um, and all of these people have something to be absolutely fucking pissed about. And this movie is so brilliantly political in that way. And I think, Gracie, when you said earlier that you, like, ignorantly thought from an American standpoint, I I think you should go easier on yourself because I truly do... <laughs> Thanks. Like, I do believe I that. I suck. No, you don't. Okay. No. <laughs> you did not stop it. Um, I truly do believe this film is meant to represent what happens to the populations of tumultuous political climates. And this goes for every single corner of the world. Um, and we're going to talk more about Jim's transition in just a bit, but I think it's really fitting to say that the rage has been in Jim all along. Like, it's just, it's just there waiting to strike. And to me, Jim represents the beautiful duality that, like, the scales in this movie tip back and forth. Like, he goes from being very aloof but calm to, like, absolutely snapping when his adopted family comes under threat. And there's a collective threat that is happening all around him and had been pretty bad until the world just couldn't sustain it anymore. And, you know, like, it was it was really awful. The state of the world was really bad. But when he becomes threatened on a very personal and individual level... Jim hits that breaking point. Like, he can no longer go about his business blindly because the only people he has left in the world are still being threatened by the same things that kicked off this whole thing in the first place. Like, it all has to do with, uh, like, the rage that we hold inside as humans and that we have no outlet for it because we're all so like cramped and the world is overpopulated and there's so many problems and it just like gets to you. So let's talk about another topic that I thought was really cool. Um, Britain's past begets its future. So we all know that <laughs> Britain is famous for the way it loved to colonize the rest of the world and how it partook in the slave trade and how shitty they were as a whole when it came to the treatment of people who weren't white. I want to pointedly talk about the black characters in this film and very importantly, Private Mailer. Um, Mailer is the zombie that the soldiers keep chained up in the laundry yard of the house and he is uh obviously a black man and when yes. i watched yeah when i watched this again with my husband one thing he said was like oh man one of the only black characters in the film and he's chained up and he's like a victim yeah continue and my first thought was like, mm, yeah, that sucks. Like, I never really thought about that until watching it now. And then I thought, like, holy shit, this is actually a brilliant metaphor. 
Yes. And so I tried to find something about this, um, like something that Alex Garland or Danny Boyle said, but I didn't have any luck. But Gracie, you found an essay where they talked about this character. So go ahead and yeah. read what you found. Well, so they they actually didn't talk about this character, but Don Keatley from Horror Homeroom brought up something that was really interesting. Um, in uh, this essay, Don talks about the OG movie Frankenstein and how it relates to 28 Days Later. Um, but the points that uh, they make in this uh, essay is actually right on topic with what you were saying here. Um, the scene from 28 Days Later replicates the arc of Frankenstein purpose- perfectly. We see a monster chained up resisting his bondage at some point. And at some point, both creatures are driven to the ground and cower in what seems to be fear. They are both tormented in ways that seem downright sadistic. Both creatures are the subjects of a quote-unquote experiment. And uh, what seem to be and look like humans are thoroughly dehumanized, treated as less than human to serve the ends of someone else's. In this case, West says, you know, says to an appalled Jim, the idea was to learn something. Uh, right and of course later in both films both creatures go on murderous and vengeful rampages both creatures uh marginally marginal humanity uh they are also both thoroughly ambivalent figures viewers feel sympathy as well as horror when they see mailer and frankenstein's monster uh not least because of how they have been treated by their hubristic and even sadistic quote-unquote creators both scenes also tap into a repressed social subtext the effect of mailer being chained up like a dog in the grounds of a mansion is intensified by the fact that he is black yeah west jim and almost all the soldiers in the mansion are white so this rampage when it comes and his attack on west in particular has inevitable connotations of racial uprising yes yes oh thank you for sharing that i'm so glad that you found that um yeah but i want to hear like you you were gonna say like mailer is like a brilliant representation of like britain's like crimes against black people yes he is basically like the embodiment of their role in the slave trade yeah and how black people were consequently treated and also a narrative about how black people have been used by the medical field as experiments or they're like tossed aside or not taken seriously by doctors. Right. Like this film highlights that so brilliantly. There's also a really good article in the guardian written by um, Kahinde Andrews and he writes um, in 1980 A man called Stephen Thompson was just one week from completing a six-year prison sentence at Gartree Prison in, I think it's Leicestershire. The the article goes on to say, then the prison guards cut his hair off. Hmm. Thompson was a Rastafarian, (gasps) and his dreadlocks were an important spiritual connection to his beliefs. Oh, my God. So he resisted. (gasps) It was taken as a sign of a violent psychiatric disorder. And instead of going home, Thompson found himself committed to a secure hospital. His detention caused outrage in the black community. And soon, Dr. I believe you pronounce his name Agri. Dr. Agri Burke was asked to help getting 
him get, he was asked to help get him released um mm-hmm. burke the first black consultant psychiatrist in the nhs remembers traveling through the snow to rampton secure hospital in nottinghamshire in a more than 40 year long career he would fight tirelessly against discrimination in healthcare, sacrificing his own advancement to do so he would take on racism in medical schools and offer psychological support to those traumatized by the infamous new crossfire in 1981 that killed 14 young people. Yet Thompson's case stuck in his mind as one that encapsulated many of the prejudices he had to battle. At the time, however, he just knew he would need to muster all his expertise and experience to convince the authorities Thompson was safe to release. Burke who turns 79 this year, still has a Jamaican accent, even after decades in the UK. Unfortunately, my colleagues in psychiatry have tended to see the Caribbean person through tinted glasses, he tells me over Zoom. The first thing that comes to the observer's eye is, this is a dangerous one, watch out. Hmm. So that was uh, kind of a disheartening article to read, but... um, I mean, we need leaders like that, especially in healthcare, to be a voice for people of color. But the thing is, everyone in these circumstances in the film, like, they all fight back. And that is what I mean when I say that the past begets the future. Like, there is this sentiment that rolls on throughout the years when societies see these less-than groups of people like they continuously think that they can be taken advantage of or they will always have the upper hand. And there comes a point in time that all of this comes crashing down and those so-called minority groups become the ones who change these patterns, whether it's through violent or peaceful means. But it always happens. Like, it it will not continue. Right. And I think that that is a really, really powerful part of this film. And speaking of breaking patterns, let's talk about Passing the Torch, the end of the patriarchy. No! So, I hate the soldiers in this film. <laughs> I hate them. They're I awful. I really do. They yeah. are awful. Um, but they do a really good job at highlighting the harmful tropes that surround toxic masculinity and control over women, abuse of power, et cetera, et cetera. Like, we have four very different types of men in this film. We have Jim, the young observant male who represents this, like, sort of future. We have Mark, who is the middle-aged kind of lone wolf who ends up falling victim to the rage virus pretty quickly. Like... He's isolated in a way that Jim isn't, and it's a clear example of what happens to men who fall through the cracks when they don't have a good support system. Um, Then you have Frank, who is the warm, loving, paternal watchdog who keeps everybody, like, under his umbrella, but he falls victim to our main patriarchal bullshit male figure, Major West. (laughs) Right. So when it comes down to it, here are our two opposite ends of the spectrum, and they're forced to duke it out after the father figure has been eliminated. And yes, and we're going to talk more about like father figures in the next uh, in the next topic. But yeah, go ahead. Yes, um, in many many ways, I think that Frank's death was on purpose. Um, 
like the group of soldiers had a close eye on the group of survivors the entire time and they let Frank fall victim to the virus because they knew that he would see right through them. Like he is the wise old father figure. So he's like, "Mm, I call bullshit. So they're like, okay, we got to get rid of him. Like he's a direct threat. So let's talk about Major West and his men for a minute. Um, In a really great article for Den of Geek, author Laura Akers writes, Christopher Eccleston's Major Henry West appears to be the leader of the last outpost of civilized humanity in Britain. Having sent out a radio message encouraging survivors to join him and his men in the safety of their northern retreat. But when Hannah, Selena, and Jim arrive, they are initially welcomed, but the major quickly informs them of the real reason for the radio signal. He says, Eight days ago, I found Jones with his gun in his mouth. He said he was going to kill himself because there was no future. What could I say to him? We fight off the infected or we wait until they starve to death and then what? What do nine men do except wait to die themselves? I moved us from the blockade and I set the radio broadcasting and I promised them women because women mean a future. The way West presents this, women mean a future, sounds somewhat noble and coming from the seemingly earnest major seems to reinforce the impression. But as Jim quickly realizes, and the soldiers just as quickly illustrate, this isn't about the fact that women are bearers of children and thus necessary to our survival as a species. It's not about the appeal of the feminine spirit and the pining for lost mothers, daughters, and sisters. It's about sex. It's about rape. Yes. Yes. What I think is very important to highlight here is that there is this is something that we see literally all the time women a lot of time in society are a means to an end whether it's birthing babies that they didn't plan on having or making less of a wage than their male counterparts in an attempt to force them to stay home and rear children and clean their house like these soldiers see women not as autonomous beings but as the way to repopulate the earth after (laughs) men have destroyed it. Uh, The article goes on to say, monstrous is the only way to describe the behavior of West's men. They separate Jim from Celine and the adolescent Hannah, making it clear they have no problem sexually assaulting both of the females. They taunt them and they even make their victims dress up in preparation for their rapes. Yes, the women escape their attackers, and yes, Jim saves the day. But consider for a moment, the major who has orchestrated the entire thing, the panderer of rapists, isn't just any man. He is the last representative of the government. He is a highly trained professional soldier who has sworn to protect the people of Britain. He is order in the face of chaos. And because his men want sex, he deprives the only women he believes are left alive of their right to say no. He reduces them to the role of toys. He doesn't even order his men to spare young Hannah. Megan Burns was about 14 when the movie was filmed. In fact, he does nothing to rein in his men, regardless of the outright brutality they seem to be looking forward to inflicting on the women. Unquote. So, pretty fucking awful, right? (laughs) 
But then, Ugh. yeah, but then along comes Jim, who up until this point has been a pretty like go with the flow guy because what else are you supposed to do in a zombie apocalypse? Every day is just kind of like, okay, one thing after another. He is just like taken over by his own rage, but he wields it to bring down the men as an ally to his female counterparts. He uses a machete on the end of a gun to stab one of the soldiers in a totally phallic way. <laughs> uh, it's not a horror movie unless someone dies in a phallic way. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, and like the look in his eyes when he does it is one of pure sexual gratification. Right. So not only is he defending women, he's doing it in a way that's almost like queer coded. Which, uh, for sure. Which I thought was incredibly interesting because he could have shot the soldier with the gun. Like, easily. He could have just pulled the trigger. But he decided to, like, bring him in close for a really intimate moment of mm-hmm. saying, like, fuck your patriarchal continuations. This is the future, baby! <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, Here's another really interesting and important point from that same article. Um, There is no reason why the outpost held by Major West and his men needed to be military in nature. Most zombie movies reveal the military to be inept, and it's generally the fierce band of previously unaffiliated civilians who work together to deal with the zombie threat. So we should assume that this was a conscious choice. It's easy to blame individual men or groups of men for prevailing attitudes towards women on this subject. It's quite another to acknowledge the systemic devaluing of women to the point where they are little better than meat thrown to dogs. Boyle, by putting the words and motivations into the mouth and person of Eccleston's major, the last defender of civilization, takes this to a whole new level upping the social ante and rationalizing it in a way that almost convinces. To quote Shakespeare, the world must be peopled. But this isn't about resorting, restoring the human race. This can be done through consensual sex. Rape is not necessary. What Boyle points out, consciously or not, I'm going to go with the former since he's hardly a careless director, is that however far we think we've come as a society in relation to women's rights, we are still too frighteningly close to having made no progress whatsoever. If men want sex, women will be made to provide it. It's not a particularly well-hidden message in the film. Major West rationalizes women's lack of rights to their own bodies in the same way, with the same tone, that we have grown to accustomed that we have grown so accustomed to in our political and social discourse. He dresses it in the same sanctity of continued life, as so many do. What I love about Boyle's film is that he treats this kind of rhetoric and attitude like exactly what it is, a horror, unquote. Can I also just say yes, it's been (laughs) 28 days. And these men are (laughs) dying for sex. That, to me, blew my mind. I was like, it's been a month. Relax. 
Yeah, like you don't even know what the other parts of the world look like. Well, that one guy is like, I think it's just happening in England. I think if we just like chill out and wait a minute, we'll be we won't be quarantined anymore. You know? Yes. <laughs> but it's because they they think like this. That's so interesting because it's like it's only been a month or a little over a month. Mm-hmm. And at the point that this happens and they're already losing their shit. I know. And they like they can't even just like take a step back and just like wait a goddamn minute to see maybe things are going to be okay. Right. Again, it's only been a month. It's not like it's been two years even like, you know, it's like or even six months. It's been a month and they are thinking that's it. There's no one else in the world. There's no women. We're all going to die. But and I'm just like, oh, my God, calm down. Like, it's yeah. just like, I don't know. I just think it's interesting that they were already like losing their brains. Like while they were, well, it's only been a few, like a month or so. Like, yes. Gee whiz. I think that was absolutely done on purpose because mm-hmm. it's also like, they yes, were They like- were quick. They were quick to assume, a.k.a. they were quick to anger so they were quick to the solution of rape. Yes. And also, um, I feel like it's less about populating the earth than it is about men, like, wanting what they want and wanting it now. And it's like... Because it was, quote-unquote, taken from them, so now they want to, like, take it back kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, weird. It's kind of like how uh, women don't have control over their bodies, so they try to take it back all the time and it backfires <laughs> on them. Like, fuck. My God. But yeah, I hate these soldiers. I hate them. Yeah, they I do a them. really good job. <laughs> they do a really good job of making them not very likable <laughs> at all. Absolutely. Um. So that's really quite interesting let's talk about our next topic which is like gym and heteronormativity and families and then like becoming the man um something that really struck me was the idea and the display of family roles and heteronormativity in this film it's interesting to see jim start off as this young inexperienced man wandering around london unsure of what is happening or why it's even happening and it's almost like he is born again after his coma because i mean it's pretty telling because he wakes up in the hospital absolutely naked and which side note who (laughs) leaves a coma patient completely nude on their hospital bed. Well, I right. And like the what? the imagery, this is why I thought I was like, that makes no sense to me. But yeah. I think that it was done on purpose for the film because the imagery is sort of on the nose here when it comes to like birth, like being born. Yeah. You're born naked. Yep. So it's like he wakes up from this coma, he's nude. And he's like, what is happening? Like, he's like a newborn baby, almost. It's very interesting. Yeah. And even the way he walks, because he's been in a coma, he hasn't walked in forever. So he kind of, like, limps a little bit. So it's like he's starting to, like, do things for the first time again. It's really interesting. Um, But anyway, he meets Selena and Mark. And at first, they become, like, his surrogate parents. Like, his new mother and father, especially since his real mother and father are dead. But anyway, uh, after Jim finds his real parents dead, the ragers attack the house that they're in, and one of them bites Mark. 
And Selena, almost like a praying mantis, kills the father figure immediately, mm-hmm. leaving just her and Jim mm-hmm. in that in that moment, leaving just her and the baby kind of thing. Now, after Mark dies, uh, I think the roles sort of change because now she's no longer the mother to Jim, but more like his equal. And then, of course, his love interest. Yeah. But there's also some like Oedipus Rex type interpretations here as well. I guess you could get into that. I don't feel like it right now, so I'm not going to. But it (laughs) does sort of like kind of like this whole like, you know, mother figure and son figure like in love kind of thing, which is really interesting. Yeah. But um so after Mark is dead and it's just him and Selena, uh he becomes the quote unquote man in the group, but he's not really a man yet. He's still like young, a child, inexperienced. Uh he relies on others' survival skills to get him through. Uh mainly Selena. Uh, when Frank and his daughter Hannah join the group, Frank takes over as the new father figure, giving Jim like another pass at having to take that role. Frank has the idea to go to the military base. Frank gets the car and he drives them. They all sit with him in the car like a bunch of kids on a weird road trip with dad. <laughs> I love it. While stopped in the countryside for a picnic, they notice a team of horses. Two adults and two colts, from the look of it. A family. Side note, I think it's really great that a group of horses is called a team. Like, how fitting is that for this scene? And this group of survivors, they've found each other and they're helping each other survive and they are a team. Yeah. Okay. So that night, Jim has a nightmare and Frank kind of wakes him and tells him, like, it's okay. It was only a dream. And Jim says, thanks, dad. (laughs) I know. And it goes, like, and he goes back to sleep soundly and i think that that was like okay like solidifies frank as like the father figure in this group yeah um one of the next scenes i believe shows them all getting like gas for the car i think yeah and jim makes his first kill he has to kill a rager that is a young boy Mm -hmm. and it's very sad and traumatic for jim and for me watching this i think this is when jim has metaphorically killed the young boy in himself. Yep. It's almost like a rite of passage. And not long after that, Frank becomes infected and then is shot by the military. Once at the compound, I don't think Jim is quite ready to become the man of the family, or at least, yeah, like the he's not like ready to become the man of the family. Um, because at first, he's almost trying to find that patriarchal leader in Major West. Until West pats him on the head and says, you know, we need these ladies for sex slaves now. So goodbye, you, you know, and it's just like, uh, pardon? (laughs) (laughs) I think the fuck not. (laughs) Yeah. And this is when Jim becomes the patriarchal father leader of the family. You know, he quote unquote beats his chest to protect the women uh, because he goes he goes wild and he kills them all. So, yeah, this film definitely has a heteronormal ending, like happy ending. And like, sue me. But I really thought that was refreshing. Yeah. Um, uh, I just I don't know. I thought everyone was going to die again. This was my first time seeing this film. And I sat down and I prepared myself for every single person except for Selena because I did know she was a final girl. 
mm-hmm. I was like, I, everyone's going to die except Selena, and I have to be ready for this, you know? Yep. Yep. And that didn't happen. And I legitimately, like, breathed a sigh of relief, because this is actually one of the reasons why I don't like zombie movies, because I, I feel like they are too sad for me. <laughs> Yes. They're too sad, and I don't like that. <laughs> they really highlight the tragedy of the human experience. Right. And so <laughs> the so the fact that it didn't end sad actually, like, made me really happy. Um, and according to, like, like listen, I, I know it's not for everyone, and uh, not everyone thought this ending was great. People still kind of think, like, okay, like, this is kind of like a bullshit ending for a zombie okay, movie. Okay, so watch the alternate ending, you turds. Well, that's what I mean. Like, the alternate <laughs> ending we'll talk a little bit about is much sadder. But, um, yeah, uh, not everyone thinks it's great, and I get it. It really just boils down to what some horror scholars call a, quote-unquote, patriarchal survivalist fantasy. And according to Kate Caddy and Thomas Oates for their essay, Family Splatters, quote, the contemporary political, oops, the contemporary political project that emerged as hegemonic at the turn of the 21st century has subtly crafted a new role for the institution of the family. Neoliberal politics have not simply reordered economic relations. They also repositioned cultural common sense. For example, consider former British prime minister, Margaret Thatcher's view on how groups of nations are organized. We quoted this earlier, but she said, there's no such thing as a society. There are individual men and women. They, and there are families, unquote. Such reframing arranges material and political life in terms of race, gender, and sexuality, even while obscuring the significance uh, and relation of these identities. In such an ideological, in such an ideological environment, it is unsurprising that zombie narratives imagine one or many family units torn asunder and then signal redemption through their reconstitution or through the creation of a nuclear family. And Selena's character also offers new ways to imagine social relations. 28 Days Later maintains the racial diversity of earlier zombie films. Although most of the characters are white, Selena, a main character, and a few minor characters are black. And Selena's cutthroat survivalist ethos in the post-apocalyptic landscape institutes a different storyline about gender relations that permeates other subsequent zombie texts, that of a tough, sometimes unconventional woman who is ultimately incorporated into a traditional heterosexual family, unquote. So yeah, people don't like it, and I get it. (laughs) But... We'll talk more about why this ending for Selena might actually be really great in a minute. But first, let's like start our final thought, which is about Selena, who is our awesome final girl. Yes, she is one of my favorites. She's so good. Um, Ty Gooden writes for Nerdist. Uh, Selena's self-preserving ideology, quick adjustment to a changing world, and ability to make split-second decisions based on facts are critical to their survival. She makes the logical choice to kill someone who would have become an inhuman terror in seconds. What's interesting about this is that when men exhibit these traits, they are often perceived as smart, capable leaders. Meanwhile... She's seen as someone who went from being callous to a more palatable and loving person by the end of the film. Further dialogue reveals that Selena is written specifically 
as a black woman, which is important. Generally speaking, society often labels women, specifically black women, as difficult or hard for simply standing their ground and saying what's on their minds. Selena's straightforward, assertive, and sometimes ruthless persona makes probably makes Jim, a white man, <laughs> feel quite uncomfortable because she's a woman. He and some of the audience can't see past her exterior to realize that Selena's wonderful balance of survival instincts, tenacity, heart, and compassion are always present throughout the film. Right, for sure. I mean, they yeah. t- they didn't have to save him. She didn't have to save him. Nope, at the absolutely beginning. not. And she did, which was yep. really nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, she is- but listen, like I found a great essay by Jana Brown called The Human Project, Utopia, Dystopia, and the Black Heroine in Children of Men and 28 Days Later. Now, Brown talks about the role black women and men have in these post-apocalyptic worlds. Uh, and they say, quote, the dystopian landscape of many black lives offers a template for apocalyptic parables of a global scope. But black people's roots in... But black people's routes in survival and exodus are also emblematic of utopian possibility. This is why black characters figure so crucially in many science fiction and or dystopian narratives. There are meanings historically bound to black diasporan subjects that explain this. Slavery and colonialism were post-apocalyptic. Like you mentioned earlier, Abby. Mm-hmm. And black people's existence across the globe continues as a condition of alienation. It is Selena who ultimately leads the band of travelers. She holds the film's central bleak vision and articulates its philo- philosophical ambivalence, whether or not humanity has the potential to survive its its own viol- its own violent tendencies. Racialized subjects, black and brown people, serve absolutely pivotal functions in a startling number in a startlingly number of science fiction narratives, and particularly within post-apocalyptic worlds. Black characters determine the crucial meaning and messages of many of these narratives as they bear the weight of the apocalypse. They often hold the truths and the message of the films, often representing both the damning critique and its terms of vindication. Key, from the film Children of Men, literally holds the key to survival of mankind. And as in the classic horror film Night of the Living Dead, where one where our one voice of reason amongst the Walking Dead is a black character, humankind's fate is left in Selena's hands. Unquote. And then Brown goes on to discuss some of the tropes that black people are labeled within these types of films. Um, black women in science fiction are often particularly gifted with prof- like prophetic uh vision such as like the alien visionary gyna in the television show star trek the next generation and the oracle figure in the matrix trilogy there's there's like a mediumistic ability like a witchy access to otherworldly sources of power and information gifted with hidden wisdom their function in the narrative is often to hold the film's ultimate comment on the human condition yeah. These tales also render the final judgment as the right of the formerly subjugated, as well as being able to heal, they can levy punishment. 
in both Children of Men and 28 Days Later, black women embody hope for the future while black men act out the film's bloody judgments. Luke in Children of Men becomes a villainous revolutionary, and the infected black soldier, Mailer, at the end of 28 Days Later, acts as both monster and scourge as and ultimately carries out the film's final judgment. Selena's agency is much more complex as she is given the most interiority uh, of any character in this film. She remains the ultimate survivor because she is the dystopian La Atange, right? Stranger or outsider. Mm -hmm. She is the realist. She is also the sole adult survivor in what Boyle calls its quote unquote proper ending edited in the final version. She survives because she is the one who can truly see human existence as consisting of nothing but cruelty and death. Hers is the truth about life that the, the, that the film ultimately upholds even as it struggles to sustain a belief in a humanist ethos of love and fellowship. The infected appear as zombies governed by a desire for chaos and death, burning down London and killing each other. Interestingly, Selena is a pharmacist who, throughout the film, demonstrates her powers to protect and soothe. Selena's occupation signifies the black woman as a nurturer, witch, or oracle, with the ability not only to see, but to cure, unquote. Mm-hmm. If you want to learn more about Selena as a character, please read Jana Brown's essay. It's phenomenal. Um, it's in the show notes. I also want to talk about this blog that I found by a writer that goes by the username... L-K-E-K-E-35. And they are a self-proclaimed blurred, a.k.a. black nerd. Aww. And they have a great blog called Geeking Out About It. And in this blog post, L-K-E-K-E-35 says about Selena, quote, When we first meet Selena, she is essentially the sapphire stereotype of a cold, unfeeling black woman. She loves no one. She isn't capable of loving anyone and is angry and cold and bitter, saying she would cut Jim loose in a hot second the moment he jeopardized her survival. That her anger and bitterness is justified is not made specifically clear, but she has a reason. Her entire world and life has been destroyed. She believes the only thing worth doing is surviving for survival's sake. She is unlikable at first, and Jim says as much, but she grows into a more sympathetic character as the plot moves forward. Selena is the co-protagonist of this movie. She has a definite character arc, and her decisions to help and her decisions help to carry the plot. Selena grows from someone who is cold and callous, who disparages disparages Jim's compassion for others into someone warm and compassionate, willing to love and let herself be loved. Jim grows from someone who is too trusting and and idealistic and saying that he would never live the way Selena has been living into someone willing to fight and kill for the people he loves. Ironically, he has to become hardened and more than a little brutal himself if he wants to save the the woman he has fallen in love with. He brutally slaughters all the soldiers he meets in an effort to find and rescue the two women. Selena, in turn, has to adopt the qualities she hated in Jim when they first met if she wants to save Hannah and herself. If Selena were white, it would be insulting to see her damseled in such a fashion. But since we so rarely get to see black women be vulnerable and loved, but still brave 
and smart, it overturns the stereotypical narrative of the strong black woman who, quote unquote, don't need no man. At the beginning of the movie, she declares she doesn't need anyone, but she is wrong. Hannah tells her midway through the movie that they all need each other. And by that point, Selena is willing to accept that. Unquote. Wow. Yes. A lot to think about here. The tropes that we see black women fit like in, fit into in films might seem very empowering, but maybe not so much to actual black viewers. Right. So, uh... I want to know what what our black listeners think of Selena because I I I think it's really interesting and I want to hear that perspective. Okay, well that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's it for this month's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Thank you all for listening. I let us know what you think about this episode and listen. If you love what we do, please consider becoming a patron. Abby and I work really hard on this show without any help from researchers or editors. So let us know how much you appreciate our work and head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. And if Patreon isn't your deal, you can also show us your support by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. And a link to our merch shop and our Patreon is in the show notes of this episode. So check it out. Yes, and we know times are super tough right now, so a free way to help the show is by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show, please. For sure, and don't forget Black Lives Matter and Trans Lives Matter. Check out the show's show notes so you can see how you can help out. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.